So John had to leave us to go do some reporting and uh, commentating on for his real job on CBS. So uh, we're going to do our next segment, our Slate Plus segment without him. But Jacob is staying with us, fortunately. So let's move on to our last topic, which is what do you do now? You're a you're a citizen. Maybe you were a, a never Trumper or a Hillary, a fierce Hillary advocate. Uh, you are dismayed, disturbed, alarmed by Trump's election. What is your role in the Trump in Trump universe? What's your civic obligation? What are the things that you can do to be most effective that can bring about the change that you want? Emily, do you have any thoughts about that to start? Yeah, I mean, it's so important. I guess I have to start at home in my own house. My kids are really alarmed and there's something heartbreaking about them seeing someone rewarded for treating other people, you know, people of color, women, disabled people so shabbily that just flies in the face of the values we've tried to instill in them and what I want them to expect from the country. And so I feel like the first task is just to reassure kids that they're going to be okay, even though we're not exactly sure how that's going to play out. But to both make room for the most alarmist scenarios that we need to guard against and also not like jump off the cliff before we have to so that we don't create this kind of sense of hopelessness and nihilism around us. Jacob, one of the problems that the election map pointed out to all of us is that if you look at a map, you know, we live with people like ourselves, spend time with people like ourselves. I don't think at that event that uh, you and I were at, that Slate did the election watching party last night, I doubt there was a Trump voter there yeah. in the 500 or 700 people in the audience. How in a world where you don't know people who are who support the, the president and, and his policies, how can you possibly understand it or, or, or engage with it in a useful way? Right. Well, I do think there's been a failure of understanding of Trump supporters and what they think and, and why they're upset. But at the same time, I think I run the Slate group. I mean, I, I, you know, my only positive feeling when I woke up this morning was that Slate has never been so necessary or so important that we have a group of readers and listeners who depend on us to help them understand the world and to be rational and to be lucid and to be fair, uh, but that also the basic truth-telling function of journalism is going to be more necessary than it's ever been and more under siege than it's ever been because I think there are these tremendous natural forces to normalize Trump. And now that he's won the presidency, to treat him and treat this like it's an ordinary, unusual, but but acceptable phenomenon in American politics. And I think – you know, as as a member of the press, someone who, who leads the business side of a news organization, I feel our role is to not be strident, not be hysterical, but to tell the truth and describe the reality and to stand up for for the idea of rationalism and an enlightened approach to um, policy and ideas. You know, I think part of what, what Emily was getting at is, is, you know, fake news is just one expression of the whole rejection of a rationalist worldview. Right? And you can't you can't give in to that and say, all right, well, you have your your facts and we have ours. You have to uphold rationalism and reality as, as a cause, you know, and I think it's it's going to be under siege for the next few years, at, at least. It's a little, bit, it's of, beautiful. That's a little a- bit of sense of what I, I feel my role is now. 
I mean, David, also, J- Jacob said something earlier about the losers and the winners, which is stark but true. And I think our one of our big jobs as journalists is going to be thinking about who is losing and who is suffering and, you know, in a calm but rigorous way, figuring out the impact of this presidency. Because, I mean, one thing is Trump is going to be accountable now. Like, he's the president. It's pretty hard to pass the buck and refuse to accept blame for things going wrong when you're actually president of the United States. And so if things unravel, if people get hurt, those stories and and that truth needs to be out there front and center because he's going to try to deny it and pretend it's not there. But, you know, we have to do our best (laughs) to tell that story. Well, Emily, I think your point from a few minutes ago about his possible willingness to manipulate the facts that the government creates is one that actually alarms me. Is that so much of what we depend on government for is reliable tracking of of how we live and how we prosper and what people do and and whether things are going well and poorly. And if you have somebody who is unwilling to be honest about that, it makes it very hard to to hold him to account. Right. But how do you turn like the Bureau of Labor Statistics into a propaganda machine? I mean, there are lots of people who work there. They are career government employees. They know how to do their jobs. Like there are steps along the way to that happening. And I, (laughs) yeah, somehow we have to figure out how to help support that. What about politically? Democrats just took a huge beating. We haven't even talked about the fact that they, they didn't get close to taking the Senate, didn't get close to taking the House. They are in poor shape in the state houses. What politically should Democrats think about doing to recover? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, silence. Nobody, silence. Jacob, please. We don't have a clue. But, you know, I think I I was going into the election assuming that we were going to have a period of Republican recriminations where that party had to focus on its divisions and figuring out how people who disagreed were going to get along with each other. And look, you know, it's it's maybe a couple of days before we sort of start to get into this. But I think that's going to happen on the Democratic side again. And the argument from the Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type people is that the, the party has given up on the working class and that, you know, in some ways it dovetails with with the Trump critique about the establishment being co-opted and identifying with the interests of of the wealthy and being out of touch. And I think that tide is going to be hard to resist in the party. I mean, I don't you know, I I don't think the the natural successor candidate to Hillary Clinton is Tim Kaine or, or, you know, a very mainstream Democrat who's been in Washington. I think it's someone who's more revolutionary in the other direction. And you start to have the the kind of politics that really do not resemble the politics we all grew up with, where Republicans stood for some version of Reaganism and Democrats stood for some version of Clintonism. I mean, you really could have, you know, two competing populisms, a right wing populism represented by Trumpism and a left wing populism represented probably not by Bernie Sanders just because of age and the unlikelihood he'd be the candidate again, but but represented more by his view of the world. But but then do you think that that Democrats need uh, to focus less on the presidency and start building a grassroots, a grassroots progressive party, which concentrates on winning some state houses and, and creating a cadre of young politicians who can become leaders. I think I feel like one of the problems the Democrats have had is that they they had this obsessive focus on holding the White House because Obama held the White House and that that's been nice and and because Congress seems so out of reach but as a result it's become a 
a party which had a head but no feet. And I wonder if that I wonder how they redress that. Right. That's a long term building project, though. I mean, President Obama has talked about making state races his priority when he's no longer president. And now there's a new urgency to that project. It doesn't get you the the revolutionary or the just, you know, populist standard bearer in the next election, though. I mean, that person has to come from an office to which they've already been elected, presumably, or somewhere else. Who knows? There were a couple of bright spots for Democrats. Should we just mention that, you know, Nevada has a new Latina senator, Kamala Harris won in California. Uh, So there are a couple of places across the country where you could see, um, because of the demographics, a different answer to this question. I wonder if there's going to be a way in which in the, with the state of California and the city of New York, that even though Democrats ha- are really out of power everywhere and, and the national government's going to be a catastrophe, they can use the the influence of the, that state and that city in the popular imagination and in uh, their ability to sort of move markets slightly and, and to create ideas to, to evangelize Democratic ideas, um, even though they're losing, actually losing everything at the national level. Uh, that, you know, California having higher air emission, having higher emission standards influenced the whole country over the past generation or the way that New York City banning smoking caused ban- smoking bans to to proliferate around the country. And then if you rather than thinking of of the job of politics as simply being winning elections, but actually using using your your strongholds as models, then maybe there's something there. If you're a progressive activist, you have to think locally. I mean the state level is sort of the maximum level you can think of because there's literally nothing you can do to tr- try to advance your goals right now on a federal level. On a federal level, you can hope to prevent certain kinds of damage. But if you actually want to accomplish something in terms of progressive change, you have to look to those state governments or city governments where it's possible to create democratic models. Emily, Jacob talked at the beginning of the segment about the role of the free press and to be rational and the importance of Slate and and the work that places like Slate do. Can you think of specific actions that you could take to ameliorate what you fear? First of all, it's like community, right? Reassuring that I live in a blue city in which there are going to be a lot of people who are going to feel alarmed and a lot of people who could be deported. And so, you know, look, there are things I think we have to look out for in terms of real breaches of civil liberties on a kind of individual citizenship level. And then I think as a journalist, we have to pledge ourselves to keeping as rigorous an eye as we possibly can on the activities of the federal government. And also to be open to the idea that maybe this won't turn out to be as apocalyptic and alarming as we all feel like it could be. I mean, Donald Trump has had very pragmatic moments in his life, and he presumably is not going to want to be a failed president who causes a huge recession and, you know, international instability. So it's possible that we're also going to have to adjust the idea that, as you said, David, that maybe he does turn into a rather standard Republican president, and that even if it's galling to think about normalizing him that, you know, we have to look at what's actually happening in front of us and react to that. What do you think? How do you feel like you can change your life? Well, the only things I thought of were individual actions, like when you actually think international travel, so going to places and representing America in a kind of positive way when you go elsewhere. And similarly, if there are ways to take in and accommodate uh 
visitors to America from overseas um, who are, you know, whether it's immigrants being somebody who who works to help immigrants and, and shelter immigrants and refugees. I think that's a that's a worthy act. Um, that's something I was thinking about, like. Yeah. Can I have a refugee family in my house? I don't know. Right. And, and Trump's not going to make it easy, right? But I mean, but there are, you know, but there are organizations right now that I think you can turn to because they they both deal with this issue. You know, the International Rescue Committee is the most important organization in the United States that helps refugees get here and helps them when they get here. You know, I'm going to write a check to the the International Rescue Committee. I would have anyway because I believe in its work. But now it seems to take on a political connotation when at other times it would just seem a neutral thing you do to help people who, who are in need of your assistance. Right, right. And maybe it's more than writing checks, too. Maybe it's engaging in the community and in civic life and volunteering in a way that, you know, some of us don't do enough of. Let's go to cocktail chatter. <laughs> if there was anything, if there's anything that's happened uh, in my circles over the last couple of days, it's cocktails and chatter and cocktails and more cocktails and then chatter and more cocktails. So I don't know whether uh, either of you has had an opportunity to think of some cocktail chatter, which isn't directly related to the election or you have some some pleasant thought. Uh, <laughs> I have a little tiny but sort of half, only half, because I'm so addled, I didn't quite figure out all the specifics of this. But from the point of view of criminal justice reformers, there was a, another bright spot in this election, which is that some really hardline prosecutors lost in places like Tampa, um, in Texas. People who, you know, were being very harsh with sentencing and charging were thrown out of office. And Joe Arpaio, the sheriff in Maricopa County, Arizona, who is famous and infamous for going after immigrants, came under criminal investigation himself, and he was also voted out. All right. There we go. Jacob. I, I'm, I'm a little bit chatterless. I'm, my, my teeth are chattering, but that's something. I guess, <laughs> Does that count? Uh, you I know, think that counts. What, yeah. I, I'm going to be, uh, first of all, I, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to stay away from the bottle for a while. I think it's, you know, um, uh, I, I want to crutch. Yeah, I want to I want to not rely on that. Um, I do think it's important. Everyone has to think about the things you do that that make you feel better, because I think a lot of us are going to be feeling very low about this and, and powerless and helpless. I'm planning to make dinner for my family tonight and uh, go for some long runs because uh, exercise is the one thing that helps me process and, and feel like there's going to be a way a way forward after something really terrible happens. And then maybe uh, maybe take in some some art over the weekend. That sounds like a great idea. Uh, actually, I'm going to change my chatter. I was going to do kind of a gloomy one. Please you, don't. I'm going to redo a chatter <laughs> I've done before because I think it's really apropos per cooking and refugees, the International Rescue Committee. I've talked about this uh, on the GapFest in the past, but why not talk about it again? There is in New York City the most wonderful organization uh, which goes exactly against what Trumpism stands for. It is called the League of Kitchens, and it is a cooking school, essentially, where you go to the home of a an immigrant to America, usually a woman, usually a middle-aged or older woman, who's a great home cook. And you spend the afternoon with this woman. You learn how to cook and you have meals with her and you learn her life story and share your life story and come away with expertise and personal knowledge of, of a culture and of a food and a, and, a, and a food culture in a very small group, uh, half a dozen people at most in, in the classes. 
the class I did last year was with a woman named Nawida, who is an Afghan refugee rescued by the International Rescue Committee, essentially from slavery in Pakistan. And she's a Muslim immigrant to the United States. She has kids. She works really hard. She's an amazing cook. She loves being here. She lives in an apartment in Queens and just creates these fabulous meals for people and and shares her life and her culture. And it's fantastic. So if you get a chance to take a class at the League of Kitchens, um, you should. It's in New York City. And it really it it stands for what is best and most welcoming about this country. That sounds both moving and delicious. It is. You you would you should do it, Jacob. You would love it. You sign, honestly sign would. me up. I will. Yeah. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply, including, of course, Trumpcast, which will continue, Jacob has promised. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to us in iTunes and comment and rate. For Emily Bazelon and Jacob Weisberg and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll see you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. What a fucking shitty shitty time to have a slate plus segment we're gonna try we're gonna try to slate plus for you (laughs) so this is the best topic i come up with on short notice and (laughs) emily emily and jacob uh you can you know if we if you can think of something better we'll do that it is the all we could think about this for the past few months even before trump won was what a terrible election cycle how dismal this is but surely there were some good things that happened in this election, not in terms of the outcome, but just ways in which this campaign unfolded that brought you, unfolded that brought you pleasure. Or you thought, oh, that's nice. That's good. There must be something. Is there any is there any little speck of gold in the toxic waste dump of the 2016 campaign? I have something. There is some great comedy satire that got made. Uh, some of it was in the public service announcements that comedians and Hollywood folks made, like, in a rush of urgency right before the election. My favorite one is the um, video, the We Are the World satire that Rachel Bloom put together. There are a whole bunch of those. There's Saturday Night Live. Yeah. <laughs> I think that might be it for me. Uh, well, I'll give you an obvious one. Podcasting has become a vital part of of political journalism and political media. Uh, the media always changes it around an election cycle, and I think one positive change is just what we're doing right now is now is now part of the landscape and not just a thing sort of eccentric techies do. Huh? But all those podcasts were so wrong. They were also wrong about what was going to happen. But the yeah, medium but you, flourished, David. People are going to keep listening to them, though, because they were great, you know, and, and, and there's wrong and there's wrong. I mean, everybody was wrong about predictions. And let's just I mean, I'm kind of taking a vow just to not ever make any predictions because all we do is repeat what we hear from other people and process it in one way or the other. And we don't actually know anything about what's going to happen. So we should stop talking about that. But there are things we do know about and can talk about in a, in a useful way. And. A podcast is is just a a great way to do it. And I think podcast consumption is going to stay up after the campaign. That's a prediction. I just promised I wouldn't make any. Oh, my God. You lasted 12 (laughs) seconds. (laughs) I want to say something warm about Hillary Clinton. I mean, she is going to come in for such a beating, so many recriminations. And who knows, maybe Donald Trump will be appointing a special prosecutor to go after her endlessly. But I know that there is heartbreak among 
women who supported her right now, and it is entirely justified. But she did show us a dignified female candidacy. She stood on that debate stage. She won those debates. Um, the idea of a woman running for president from a major party is now part of our reality. So um, let's hang on to that part of this. That's good. I honestly couldn't think of anything. <laughs> I couldn't think of a single thing. You, the, the two examples, <laughs> not a one thing. Well, you guys, the three examples you guys just did are all good. So I think that's that's uh, those are. Great. I have one more. Last week I did a story about the get out the vote effort in Florida among Latinos, and I know that it didn't triumph. But I talked to people who were voting for the first time, who were so energized and so full of hope for the country, and I really want them to figure out a way to continue that mobilization and that energy, even though um, they weren't able to pull it off this time. Yeah. Well, I hope so. If I were them, I'd be kind of totally cynical and disillusioned and <laughs> probably regret <laughs> yeah, what I just done. We could all feel that way, but we can't afford to. It's still our country. Right. Well, I think we can take a couple of days. I think it's, it's, you can, you can uh, give in to despair for 48 hours, but then, uh, then that's it. Then you got to get, get back on the horse okay. and start working on something. That you hear that fair. slate plus listeners that probably, by the time you've listened to this, it's probably 48 hours past. So why aren't you, you know, why aren't you uh, completing your model airplane? Why, why, why haven't you started that charter school you've been hoping to start? <laughs> I don't think hounding our listeners is, I don't think that's going to endear you to anyone right now. Everyone's going to have to lick their wounds at their own pace. Yeah. All right. Slate Plus. I, I'm sorry. I couldn't think of anything good that came out of the election. I did intend to, and then I couldn't. Uh, we you can will... always post it on the Facebook page if you think of something. I, or I could just make something up and post it as fake news. I could post a fake thing that the election did, and that would be good. Uh, we'll talk to you later, Slate Plus. Bye-bye.